everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? My name is Naomi Schaefer-Riley, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. And today we are joined by Katie Faust. She is the founder and director of an organization called Them Before Us. And she's also the author of a book that is forthcoming with that same title. So welcome, Katie. Thanks for having me. I'm glad I could join you today. Yeah, Katie, it's so great to see you. You may not know this, but when Naomi and I got together to talk about doing a podcast, we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do and what we should call it. And the thing that we were constantly frustrated by was that we both have done a ton of work in child welfare systems, education, and oftentimes we saw the most well-intentioned adults trying to do great things for kids, but it almost always seemed that the decisions that were made were focused on what might be better for adults than versus kids. And it seems like a lot of your work seems to try to flip this script of adult-centric systems around marriage, adoption. So tell us a little bit about that philosophy that you're trying to push forth. Yeah, so you're my people. Let's just make that clear. <laughs> you guys are my people. I'm glad that we have found each other. Now there are three of us. Yes. Awesome. Yes. I think okay. there's a fourth guy. I think there's a fourth guy on the corner. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, okay. no, we're good. We're we'll good. No, there's good people doing good work about this, which I am so grateful for. And many of whom have kind of discipled me in this, this journey. But yeah, I kind of first started. I'm a nobody. I'm an, I'm an ordinary person who kind of got into this debate because when we were talking about marriage back in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, it was obsessively focused on adults, adult desire, adult wants. I'd worked with enough kids to know that, hey, when a kid loses their mom or dad, that's painful. It's detrimental. And it often, you know, leaves a lifelong wound. And, you know, marriage is a social justice issue for kids, in my opinion. But once I like started looking at how the marriage conversation was going, I realized that in every other issue of marriage and family, whether you're talking about reproductive technologies, whether you're talking about adoption, whether you're talking about like some of these supposedly progressive new modern families where there's polygamous or open marriages or maybe just run-of-the-mill cohabitation, every divorce is a huge one. All of these conversations obsessively focus on adult desires, adult wants, adult longings, and rarely are the kids even mentioned but if they are mentioned, it's usually to the tune of, they're going to love it because I love it. Why is that flawed thinking? Why is that flawed thinking? Mm. Because we have data, because we know what it takes to set kids up for success. And it is very unmodern. And that is that the two people to whom children have a natural right, their own mother and father, married in a low conflict relationship statistically is what it takes for kids to be safe, healthy, and happy. And all of these other forms of, you know, what we say at them before us is modern family is just code for child loss. You know, the kid had to lose something to be in that family. Sometimes kids lose parents to tragedy and we mourn. But these days, oftentimes kids lose a parent through intentionality. And that's an injustice. So we try to look at all marriage and family issues through the lens of children's rights to their mother and father. And that's a really helpful template because then you don't play kind of whack-a-mole with all the different marriage and family issues, surrogacy and polyamory and same-sex parenting and sperm and egg donation and divorce. Really, that's all the same conversation. It's are you respecting or are you disregarding the rights of children? Wow. I mean, in your book, you talk about when you started to, to talk about this publicly, it really had an impact on personal relationships. Talk about that. 
so I reluctantly got into this fight because I love to be loved and I hate to be hated and I like keeping my friends. But when I heard what the other side was saying, in essence, you know, what kind of got me riled up about this is kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads. Well, what that means is they don't care if they've lost their mom or dad. And that's a lie. I worked with kids long enough. I had a history in adoption, uh, working at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. I was the assistant director there for quite a while. I'm an adoptive mom myself. We've been doing youth ministry for decades. I haven't met a kid that didn't care yet whether or not they lost their mom or dad, regardless of how that took place, whether you're talking about death, abandonment, and subsequent adoption, divorce. And now I'm in contact with a lot of kids created through reproductive technologies, and it's impacted them. So they care, you know, and I really feel like the onus is on adults to conform to the rights of children. But our current cultural narrative seems to be communicating, no, the kids should conform to me and what I want. I wanted to, to ask you, the, the use of this phrase children's rights has kind of an interesting history. I mean, it was sort of more popular in the 80s and 90s in more liberal progressive circles as sort of this idea that, you know, adolescents have the right to do what they want with their bodies. And and I think, you know, conservatives have kind of been turned off from the phrase children's rights because it implied that children had some autonomy outside of their parents. But it seems like you're sort of co-opting that or using that phrase in a different way. And I was wondering if you could sort of talk about, you know, how you're using it and, and what it means for children to have rights independent of their families in a way. Yeah, well, I'm using it properly. (laughs) Thanks for clearing that up. (laughs) You betcha. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we actually are already familiar with the understanding that children have rights. We talk about this a lot in the pro-life movement, right? We talk about this a lot when we're fighting back against attempts to steal children's right to life from them in the name of adult desire or in, in the name of adult longings or fears or wants or whatever it is, right? We already know that children have a fundamental right to life. It's a natural right. And I understand the confusion. I understand the challenges for conservatives because the term rights has been so wrongly used that now anything that I really, really want is framed as a right. And so we spend some time in chapter one in the book talking about why this is a natural right. You can look at it from a philosophical perspective. You can look at it from a layman's perspective. But one tool that I think is really helpful is most of us don't really have any qualms or wouldn't argue with the fact that adults have a right to their own biological child. You don't want just any baby in the nursery at the hospital after you give birth. You want your baby because you have a natural right to that baby. You have a certain claim to that baby, right? There's something distinct about the relationship that you have with the baby that came from your body. And guess what? Children's rights to their own mother and father are the flip side of parental rights. And that is that the baby also cares who they go home from the hospital with and the baby is harmed. Even if they are subsequently adopted by a loving couple, they are harmed. They lose something. They have to suffer if they are not taken home by their own biological parents. So the word children's rights, when it comes to their primary rights to life and to their own mother and father, should not be avoided. It needs to be redeemed. Who is opposed to children's rights? All the people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I I will tell you, like... (laughs) Give me enough time and I'll piss off every single adult group out there. (laughs) Like the idea that children have a right to their own biological parents insists really that all adults conform to that right. It is making demands 
on single adults, married adults, gay adults, straight adults. I mean, at some point, all of us are going to have to do hard things if we are going to conform to the rights of the children that we create and then also the children in need in the world, the, the kids in need of a loving family. And so the idea is that children have a fundamental right. This is in my Twitter bio, right? Kids have a right to life. Kids have a right to their parents. Adults, order your lives accordingly. And that means all adults, right? Nobody gets a pass in the world of children's rights. And so that's really difficult because, so the sweet Christian heterosexual couple that's dealing with infertility, they have to figure out a way to resolve that struggle. They have to hopefully resolve the underlying issues of fertility, but they cannot seek a sperm donor as a means of resolving their struggles with infertility because to do so purposely cuts a child off from one of the people to whom they have a natural right and the child does suffer as a result. It means that the adult who experiences same-sex attraction must recognize that their life and their desire for a family must bend to a child's fundamental right to be in daily relationship with both their mother and father, rather than expecting the child to conform to their romantic inclinations. It means that the single 40-something career woman who desperately wants a baby but hasn't found Mr. Right cannot insist that a child lose their father and become a single mother by choice so that she can not miss that biological window. And it means that the couple that is struggling in their marriage, not, not because of abuse, because of all the other things that married couples struggle with, it means that they have to do the hard work of resolving the conflict. Because if they don't, what they're saying is, kids, this cross is just too heavy for us. Here, you take it instead, if they choose a no-fault divorce. So the idea that children have a right to their mother and father daily means that every adult must conform to those rights single, married, gay, and straight. So that's going to rub almost everybody the wrong way. So how does adoption fall in that framework? Yeah. So what we say is that in the world of children's rights, adults must do hard things. And that actually is, we spend chapter nine contrasting adoption and reproductive technologies, because in adoption, adults do the hard things. In reproductive technologies, it insists that children do the hard things. So adoption is an institution centered around meeting the needs of children who have lost their parents. The child is the client. When adoption goes well, every child that needs a family is going to find a loving family. Not every adult's going to get a kid, right? And so we spend a lot of time talking about a proper understanding of adoption. Adoption is not a way for adults to get kids. The adults are not the client. The child is the client. Right. And that means that they, their rights, their needs, that is the priority. That's why adoptive parents like me need to go through layers of screening and vetting, background checks, references, home studies, post placement reports, because social workers aren't fools. They know that placing a child with an unrelated adult is statistically risky for that kid. And they'd lose their license if they just handed out kids to adults who wanted them. Right. Reproductive technologies function on a completely different model. It's not an institution centered around the rights of children. It's a marketplace that is centered around the desires of adults. There's no background checks. There's no screenings, right? The only check <laughs> that needs to clear is the one at the bank. That's all. If you have the money, it doesn't matter if you're qualified, you're going to get the kid. Even if you walk out of the hospital with a baby that's not related to either one of you, and so the whole world of reproductive technologies kind of flies in the face of adoption best practice 
and puts kids at risk. But we're not, we don't really know because nobody's tracking these kids, right? The reproductive world, big fertility is just a wild west of child commodification. So it's it's completely separate. Like these two in these two different models are totally different. One is centered, one supports children's rights, the other one violates children's rights. Can you talk about you mentioned the data behind your position? Can you talk about some of the data on children's outcomes for some of the different family relationships that you've been talking about? Yes. So our book tries to do two things. First of all, we've got like 120 some stories because we on the pro-family side of things have always had the best data. We have always had the research. We've always had common sense. We have always had the five major religions of the world on our side. But what we have not had is story, right? We haven't had the stories of kids who have had to live through the polygamous home or with two moms who desperately wanted a father. We do have some stories of kids of divorce, but even those kids often need to tell that story anonymously because they are still trying to balance two Christmases and warring parents, and they cannot upset that relationship. The donor-conceived community are finding their voice, and we have tried to pull the very, very best stories into our book, where in our donor-conceived chapter, we've got like 30 kids talking about their feelings of commodification, their feelings of desperately, you know, genealogical bewilderment because nobody in their family looks like them, struggling with the fact that they have 50 half-siblings scattered across the world that they may never know. So that's the one thing that the book offers that I think people are not going to find anywhere else is the stories of kids created through surrogacy, the stories of kids, you know, with two dads or two moms and what that felt like to be intentionally starved of that maternal or paternal love. But we also hit the data, right? Because Stories are what moves the hearts, but data is really where it's at. And so the short answer is there are cases of abuse, neglect, and abandonment in the home of a child's married mother and father, but any other family structure only drastically increases the likelihood that children are going to struggle in school, that they're going to be abused, neglected, abandoned. And honestly, the reason is, including adoptive parents, by the way, and the reason for that is that biology seems to do something in the parent-child relationship that simply cannot be replicated in any other family structure. So this doesn't have anything to do with your sexual orientation, nothing. It has to do with can two people, are the two people in the home biologically related and committed to one another for life. So anytime you're stepping outside of that, the home raised by both biological parents, in fact, we quote child trends, a left-leaning research institute that agrees with us. We quote a lot of different organizations. Generally, there is a complete consensus on this when you're talking about the decades of data we have on family that a child fares best in the home of their biological married parents. So all of these other forms of family, whether it's a step-parent family or a single mother or two parents of the same sex or a reproductive technology situation where there's a sperm or egg donor, we just don't we're not going to see the same level of benefit to kids because of that missing biological connection. And so when you do have children that for, as you say, for any number of reasons who are no, no longer in their biological, the home of two married biological parents, what should happen with that child, assuming child's rights are of the utmost importance? Well, you know, we make a distinction, and we talked a little bit about this before, like sometimes kids lose their parent to tragedy, right? 
the whole world used to experience this kind of on a mass scale, for example, like after wartime, where there'd be generations of fatherless kids. We've got, you know, we used to lose mothers routinely through childbirth. But what we're doing now is we are incentivizing and normalizing motherless and fatherless homes because of adult desire, because adult desires are being prioritized above those rights. And so in situations of tragedy, adults do the best they can. You know what I mean? Like I have a couple different lesbian couple friends who are raising their grandchildren because the biological parents, their own children failed, failed to do what it took to be good parents. So in that situation, you surround those women and you're like, let's get in this. Like, let me help you. What can I do? But when you're in a situation where a lesbian couple saying, let's create the wound, right? Let's now create a child who's going to have a father wound. That's where you have to stand up and say, no, I understand that this is what you want, but we do not ask kids to sacrifice for adults. It's the adults who should sacrifice for the kids. So I think that you really have to look at it through a, are you about to, or do you want to intentionally create the wound for the child? In which case, children's rights activists and generally responsible adults need to just stand right in front of that train and take the hit. But if it's somebody who is seeking to mend a wound, if it's an adult who is seeking to resolve or step into the place of a negligent biological parent, then we throw our weight behind them and say, how can we help? One of the sort of popular narratives and sort of justifications for open marriages, polyamory, polygamy these days, there was a it was a big piece in the New Yorker recently that discussed the rise of polyamory and polygamy and kind of the legal status of that movement. But one of the justifications seems to be like a kind of more the merrier argument about parenting. Like these kids need, you know, as many adults as possible in their lives. And Ian and I discussed David Brooks's cover story in The Atlantic about the end of the nuclear family. And the sort of the idea seems to be, well, we just we need a sort of whole community to wrap around these kids and that that is almost preferable to, you know, some small nuclear family that doesn't have any support. How do you kind of tease out this reasoning about kind of the the whole group of adults needing to support a kid? It takes a village, Naomi. I've heard that somewhere. Well, you know, beside the fact that polygamy was outlawed or banned, banished, rebuked by the founding Republican Party as one of the twin relics of barbarism along with slavery, you know, which makes me feel like this is not progressive, but regressive. I look to the voices of kids themselves. Now, it's we don't have a whole lot of kids that have grown up in polygamous marriages. I have talked with some who grew up in some cults, cult situations where there was a lot of abuse. I know that's not what the New York Times and the Atlantic are talking about with these new kind of open marriages and all of that. But here's what I will say. We actually have a lot of experience of kids who are being raised with more than just their mother and father. And that's in the home of their step families, right? Where they're splitting homes and they've got a mom and stepdad and a dad and stepmom. And in chapter two, I quote Pat Fagan, who's a marriage researcher. He has done family counseling and child psychology for 50 years. And he told me something five years ago that I thought, that's incredible. And what he said is, when a child sees their own father loving their own mother, they feel as though their father is loving them. And when they see their own mother loving their own father, they feel as though their mother is loving them. And in his opinion, it is the only dynamic in the human experience where you can be loved indirectly where somebody can be loving somebody else and you feel the love yourself. Now contrast that with kids who watch mom show affection to stepdad, right? 
And so since Pat Fagan told me that, I will ask people, you know, oh, if you had a stepdad, you know, if I know them well enough, I'll say, well, how did you feel when they went out on a date or when they were snuggling on the couch? And a lot of the times kids are like, I hated it. I felt jealous. I wanted to get in there and stop it. I was like, that's my mom. Leave me, leave my mom alone. And that is often the case that kids don't feel the same kind of circuitous love and affection when they watch their mom love somebody else, right? Or kiss somebody else. And same with their dad showing affection for the stepmom. A lot of times kids will sit back and be like, okay, well, that's nice. I'm glad he found somebody, but they don't feel like, man, my dad is loving me as a result. So we quote a couple of kids in our book who were raised in polygamous families. It did not feel like, oh, there's so much more love for me. It felt chaotic. One woman described it as an invasion when the new parents moved in parents that she didn't feel like were parents. One young man said, I was really jealous when I saw my dad kissing another woman who lived in the same house with them when my mom left the room. So no, I don't think that kids are like, awesome. So many more adults. I feel like they're all my parents. Kids have a protectiveness and there is a distinct dynamic of their own mother and father loving one another. So notice that most of these articles about the glories of open marriages and polygamous homes will not talk to the adult children of these families. If you do reference the kids, it will be the adults saying, oh, they love it. They just think it's normal. They think it's great. Well, we'll know in about 20 or 30 years. But so far, I haven't met a whole lot of kids, you know, who have been in a home with their non-biologically related parent who said that felt exactly like a mother-father relationship to me. I know that the answer is probably both, but when you think about the trajectory of creating more of a focus on children's rights. Is this more of a cultural shift in how attitudes shift? Or is this, are there legal or policy elements that you're focused on? So at Them Before Us, what we say is we're here to change hearts and we're here to change laws. Yeah, we need to do a better job of communicating the centrality of children's rights in all of these conversations. And what we hope is that especially the book where we lay it all out and we go subject by subject, we'll help people do that. And I have heard over and over people who have a little exposure to our material go, I can't unsee this. Now, every single time I look at an article about adoption or polygamy or divorce, I realize they didn't even talk about the kids at all. This is all about the adults. This is what the adults want. I can't believe it. That's like, it's like the kid doesn't even exist, right? So that's what we want. We want to change the culture in terms of how we think and view and talk about these issues. But the other thing is, like, uh, before we had them before us, and I was just kind of doing more independent talks and writings about this, it infuriated me that you would have court cases or legislation about commercial surrogacy or whether or not insurance companies need to cover same-sex couples the same way they cover infertile heterosexual couples for fertility treatments or laws about reproductive technologies and things like that. And there would be no representation on behalf of the kids, none. It was all about the adult groups. It was all about the adults. And so I said, well, <laughs> I mean, at least can we get a letter? At least can we get some quotes about the kids who have had to live through these families and how it impacted them? Can we at least get that in front of them? So we do write letters to state legislatures. We have filed amicus briefs at the Supreme Court, bringing in the child's perspective on these issues. Because the reality is that when you do hear, first of all, when you realize, wait a second, the primary party we should be concerned with is the kids. And, oh my gosh, look at what they've, look at how they really feel about this. That is where we start to move the needle. 
All right. Well, that about ends our time with you, Katie Faust. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us about this important topic. A lot of controversial stuff here and encourage people to pick up your book and check out your organization to find out more and understand what's going on behind this Them Before Us movement. I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. And you can get our podcast, Are You Kidding Me?, on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcast. So thanks again, Katie. Thanks for having me. Thank you.